It's Monday, July 9th, 2018. I'm Jeremiah Zimmerman, and this is episode 168 of the 5049 Podcast. Thank you for joining us for another conversation between myself and another musician. A conversation about music, life, neighborhood, home, city. A lot of conversation today about uh, our shared home city of New York. Between myself and another musician. Today on the show, that musician is a wonderful violinist, singer, songwriter, human being, Lower East Side stalwart by the name of Samara Lubelski. Look, today's a good one, guys. It's a really good one. Uh, And I'm going to let you know right up top two things. One, Samara rules. Number two, if you don't like conversations about New York and uh, the Lower East Side specifically, maybe you should turn this off right now because we talk a lot about those things today. Today on the show, Samara Lubelski. Before we get into it, uh, a couple of things. Number one. The next and third in the live podcast recording and concert presentation of of the 5049 podcast is happening July 31st at Arate in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, 67 West Street. It's going to be Zena Parkins this time. You guys know Zena, and you guys know that there are very few better than Zena. Zena is going to be presenting some new music. After the concert, Zian and I are going to sit down and talk. It's going to all be recorded for a future episode of the podcast. So if you're around July 31st, come out and check out Zina and me getting into it on the mics in front of the audience. It's going to be fun. So far, they've been fun. The last one with Peter was really fun. Secondly, if you're enjoying this show, please, please, please rate and review it uh, in iTunes. Word of mouth. Even in the digital age, in the information age, this is how it goes. If you enjoy something, you tell people about it. You say, hey, you like podcasts? There's this guy. He does a podcast. Check it out. Uh, Yeah, rate, review it in iTunes. That helps. Also, check out the Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash 5049podcast. Throw in a few bucks. It helps. All right, enough of that. Uh, Today on the show, Samara Lubelski. What do you guys know about Samara Lubelski? I'm going to be straight up and and cop to the fact that I didn't know that much. I'd known the name. I knew she'd been around and had played in in plays with a lot of people that I love and a lot of people whose music that I love. And I don't know why. I had this idea that she lived like upstate or in, in, you know, um, uh, Massachusetts. And I emailed her and I was like, hey, the next time you're in New York, if you ever want to come by for a talk. And she was like, well, I live in the Lower East Side. And she lives like, uh, you know, blocks from me. And as you're going to hear in this conversation today, and as I mentioned a few minutes ago, if you don't want to hear a conversation about the Lower East Side, then uh, this ain't the podcast for you. Samara's been down in this neighborhood for, for years and years and years. She was born and raised in Soho. She's, you know, as, as far as New York goes, like as genuine an article as it comes. You know, there are certain people who just sort of grew up 
in this city. They just kind of came up out of the ground like a potato, you know? She's one of them. And something that's interesting to me about Samara is, um, you know, a lot of us in this world uh, sort of straddle many different worlds. You know, there's like the weirdo improvised side. There's the composer side. There's the pop side. There's all this stuff. And and Samara's output really, really, you know, there's a broad range of stuff. She's put out several recordings of, of her songs, you know, what are fundamentally pop albums. She's collaborated with a lot of improvisers, you know, people like Nate Woolley. She has worked a lot with Thurston Moore and his project, you know, his post-Sonic Youth stuff. She's done a lot of stuff. She's been in the city for a long time. And, you know, some of the stuff we get into today, like, I could listen to this stuff all day long. Whether it's, you know, checking out Gigi Allen in a gas station parking lot on Avenue B, you know, go, going to the Mud Club, like all this stuff to me is, I, you know, I, I think I might even start another podcast about the Lower East Side because it, it, it never gets old to me. And, you know, Samara and I, I think, you know, we're actually cut from pretty much the same cloth, you know, we're both Polish Jews and uh, it, it seems like our families are actually from the same town. There's a town in Poland called Łódź, which is where my people come from. And I just really enjoy this conversation a lot. She's Samara's hilarious. She's insanely talented, um, and she's a great person to just sit down and, and talk about it with. I, I hope we could do it more, you know, maybe off mics, grab a coffee, talk some shit. She's got a new record out. It's called Flickers at the Station. It's great, fun, pop music, and it's weird. What more could you ask for? She's got a huge catalog, and it's all, I mean, it's just dig in. You know what I mean? Check out the world of Samara Lubelski and dig in. If you want to find out more about Samara, go to samaralubelski.com. S-A-M-A-R-A-L-U-B-E-L-S-K-I. com. That's it. Um, check out the 5049 website past episodes there's a lot of them um yeah that's it i hope you guys are all doing well here's my conversation from just a couple of weeks ago with samara lebelski Well, actually, this is like, uh, you know, I grew up in Soho, and so, like, the first neighborhood where I was just like, I'm going there was... <laughs> Why, because it was Night of the Living Dead? Or? Yeah. Well, I knew all the the music people were, like, especially St. Mark's. I was a little further north, but I was just like, I knew that the music people were there. So I, I mean, St. Mark's is, you want to talk about, like, a dramatic... I mean, I mean it's crazy. I, so wait, so you're, I, I'm so surprised, I said this a second ago, that I'm surprised I didn't know you live in the Lower East Side, because I feel like I know everyone in the Lower East Side, but I thought you lived in, like, Northampton or something. Oh, no, I've done a lot of work there, but just the Thurston Moore stuff. Yeah. And then, uh, no. Oh, and I'm really good friends with um, Matt Valentine, but, but he's a little further north than right. uh, Vermont. Are you recording already? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> wait, so wait, wait, you grew up in Soho? Yeah, on Broadway between Broom and Grand. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I made it about a mile 
and a half across town. <laughs> a good friend of mine grew up on Broadway uh, between Broom and Grand. Really? She's she's a bit younger. She I think she might have just turned thirty. She uh, okay, but her dad is like known over there. He, his name is uh, Washburn. He manufactures firearms for movies and television, and he's got like a factory over there. Really? Yeah. I thought the zoning had completely changed uh, in terms of factories because I didn't know there were any left over. Well, I mean, I guess workshop is probably more like a, a more accurate okay. way to describe what he has. When we moved into the building on Broadway in 1972, and there were two floors occupied by artists, one who was my dad, and the rest of the floors were factories. You, what kind of artist was your dad? Uh, abstract painter for the most part, a little bit of conceptual stuff as well. And is he still around? Yeah. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> but not there. Got it, got it. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, you talk about Soho as a place for artists, like, that's way distant from people's memory. Yeah. I mean, not from mine, of course, because I grew up kind of in the middle of it, you know, and it was, it was very cozy at that time. Like, I think it's around, like, 1982 that the vibes start getting kind of dark and you feel the infiltration of money really changing stuff. But prior to that, it was, like, a lot of potluck dinners and a lot of people just going over to each other's houses yeah big sense of community it was a neighborhood totally i mean i was just listening to ornette coleman when he walked in oh who, yeah, yeah yeah you know famously cut that record playing for friends on prince street or yeah. whatever it is yeah no uh, jed who ran the cooler uh-huh he lived in the, our sister building oh at 475 broadway and i always kind of bugged my dad and i was like did you ever go to any jazz loft events and he's like no how did he not i mean with like studio rivby with all the stuff that was happening how could you avoid it uh i think it wasn't really quite his thing i think he was right. hanging out more with just like artists the musicians who kind of came into our life were more like folkies like danny Kalb came around a uh -huh. few times he was dating my mom's best friend so like it'd be more of like this kind of like passing of the guitar kind of vibe did you go to public school growing up yeah which one ps3 okay i i just it it sounds like and, like, and new york still you know in a lot of ways feels this way to me in that you know i used for years i i worked um over on orchard street really yeah where at russ and daughters really yeah i at the restaurant at the restaurant i opened the restaurant did it did you do a duo with Patrick Holmes? Patrick is my brother from maybe the same mother. Yes, at, at uh, Max Fish. At a basement. Yeah. Do you play... Clarinet. Clarinet. Yeah. I saw that set. That was, okay. That was very good. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, having Max Fish and Russ and Daughters reboots directly across the street from each other, there's like a real poetry in that to me. I'll buy that. Uh, Except I got relocated... By my landlord for three and a half years to Orchard Street, and I hated that block. Between Delancey and Stanton, yeah, what? Uh, Rivington. <laughs> Sorry, Siri's listening. It um, just because it was a f kind of a semi-forced relocation, I didn't yeah. want to be there. And that street has a constant transitional vibe and a lot, yeah. lot more foot traffic than over at Ridge. Were you on the s in the same building as Reverend Jen? No. Okay. Which building is she in? She is in the building. Was in the building. Um, must be like 118 or something like that. No, I was in 134. Okay. Yeah. Which, okay. Which was a real mix of like old school Airbnb and the newbies. Yeah. 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 Uh, but 
No, but, but what I was going to say is, so every day going from here to Russ and Daughters, like, and barely going, not, I forget, 14th Street, like, not going above Houston Street, um, not going above <laughs> Rivington Street, uh, I, I, I couldn't walk a block without having to stop uh-huh. and talk to people. To the point that I'd be in the basement in this building doing my laundry, and some like altacocker, you know, from the building would be like, "Hey, so why is there always such a long line on Sunday to go to Russ and Daughters?" And I'd have to be like, "Listen, you got to leave me alone." Like I'm, so it's always. I guess my point is, it's always felt very village-like to me around here. Um, I mean, Uli, who runs Max Fish, the great, the best. Yeah, I mean, I run into her sometimes. Yeah. Greg, who used to work at Max Fish, yeah. but. No, I I don't know. It's changing. So many people have moved away, especially like artists and musicians. Right. The kinds of people I knew. So, yeah. So you came to the Lower East Side in what year? Uh, I got my first apartment in 88 on 4th between B and C, and then I moved to Delancey Streets okay. soon after that. And moving to the Lower East Side just felt like a natural extension of growing up around artists in Soho? You know, back then I was already in a band and everything we did, like, especially like hanging out was always there. I had a boyfriend who lived on third between B and C uh-huh. and already Soho was over, you know, it was unaffordable. Right. Um, and I wasn't an artist. I was already playing music. So a cramped apartment that was really small and run down seemed more appropriate. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what was the first place like? Um, the very first place was an artist's. I was subletting from an artist. It was tiny. It was, uh, I think, a two-room without a proper oven, just a hot plate. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was just psyched to be on my own, of course. Yeah. Yeah. And um, the next place was another tiny apartment on Delancey Street. And uh, Matt Hainer from No Neck Blues Band yeah. still lives in the apartment I left because I thought it was He's still over there? He's still over there. I didn't there. realize he was still in New York. Yeah. He's been kind of laying low for a while, but he took over that apartment. And I don't know how he did it because I couldn't get out of there fast enough. Really? <laughs> yeah. So many. It's funny. Like, um, have you been over the Tenement Museum? Mm-mm. Well, so they do these different tours. You know, they've like each floor of the museum is like a uh, pretty accurate re- recreation of of how it was. You know, a hundred years ago or whatever. I have that apartment. I don't. Need well, that's to. what I'm saying. <laughs> I feel like every New Yorker that goes in there looks around and says, "Oh, this isn't so bad. I could." <laughs> I could do this. Before, like, the situation got super weird with my landlord, I had the bathtub in the kitchen yep. and the box with the pull for the toilet. the toilet. And it was great. Yeah. yeah. And it had, I don't know when it had last been touched at all. It seemed like most of the stuff, you know, still all the lights were pull, fit, pull strings. So I don't know. That if, was the place on Delancey. No, that was the place on Ridge where I've been since '96. Right. Do you have a, a shower head now, or is that still <laughs> the, the landlord? A developer came in and he just messed with everything. Okay. Yeah, and he he got released from jail this week, I believe. Oh, oh, Croman? Yeah. Oh, that guy's a creep. He's a crook and a creep. Yeah, and he's I don't know. It seems like he's maybe getting his somewhat, but I think so. I mean, by New York standards. By definitely. New York standards. Yeah. It's such a strange little. I, I, I know. I know you want. You probably want to talk about other things besides the Lower East Side, <laughs> but it's just. It's endlessly fascinating to me. It really is. Me too, actually. Yeah. I mean, my one of the worst ironies is that my grandmother lived on a tourney uh-huh. one block away from where I live now. So I really did not get far from the original. But, and that's always the joke. Or I remember, like, so when I moved to the neighborhood in um, 
2002, and I was working at Russ and Daughters on, on Houston Street, uh, there was a big conversation going on, you know, like, wow, the Lower East Side is really experiencing this renaissance, you know, you know, before you know it, you'll have to be someone to live in the Lower East Side and all this shit. And the joke was always, you know, if these, like, if these young Jewish grandparents and great-grandparents could see what was happening, that they were coming back to the Lower East Side to pay exorbitant amounts in rent, like, yeah, the irony is beyond disgusting. <laughs> The if you also whenever people complain about like the crowdedness, I'm just like this is nothing. Right. Yeah. Nineteen hundred. <laughs> right. It was the the most densely populated place I think in the world. Yeah. Yeah. They there's a story I think it's in one of the Luxante books about people living underneath the staircase. Yeah, in low life I think. Yeah, yeah, and like like four people living underneath the staircase, and I look at that spot and it's just like that's tight. It's tight. Yeah, it's really tight. <laughs> I remember. I I also though I feel like part of everyone's upbringing. Like, are you, were both your parents born and raised in New York? Yep. Yeah. Uh, my father was not born. He was born in Europe, but he came here as a ten year old. Where in Europe? Uh, in Russia, of Polish parents. That's where my family's from. Oh, hey, man. Hey. <laughs> and my, I mean, I'm the first generation born in this country. Okay. And um, many years ago, I was visiting my dad. He still lives in Poland. And we were uh, driving through the country doing something, and we he came from Łódź. Oh, that's where my family's from. Really? Yeah, on my dad's side, yeah. It's a... Have you been? No, I've been near. Yeah, it's not a nice place. Really? For us, particularly. Really? Really. Okay. Uh, but so, something that was so fascinating to me is my, we're driving around. My dad says, you know what? I haven't been here in years. I, I think I can remember where I grew up. Would you like to see that? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. And we found the house that he grew up in. And it was a two-room house. And the front room was his father's um, tailor shop. And the back room was where he, his father, mother, and brother all lived together in one room. Wow. You know? And so that's obviously like an extreme example. Like these people you know, under the stairs, but previous generations just lived smaller. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, I, of course, also with more disease and stuff because of like, I saw one picture of my current building on Ridge street and it was something to do with a typhoid epidemic and that people, social workers were constantly coming through. Yeah. So of course there's a lot more disease. One of the things also architecturally about my apartment is there was like a middle room before the renovations came that had no, windows mm -hmm. and then you go to the apartments in the east village and every single room has some sort of ventilation and that's because of the laws that came after the typhoid epidemic yeah yeah so i mean the you know this neighborhood historically has always been for the lowest rung of the ladder yeah and that is reflected in so many uh like you know tenement buildings you know infamously were designed to shove as many lower class people yeah. into one place and juice them as hard as you could yeah. so it's ironic now that people are moving in and they're probably complaining like why is you know these apartments are so cramped and it's like yeah because you're living in a place that wasn't designed for 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 sustainable living absolutely not in fact i live the apartment i live in now I live as one person, and everyone else is three people in the same space. Yeah. But they're much younger, and they're super psyched, as far as I can tell. Yeah. You know, they like, we love it here, and they seem to have no problem with tiny, tiny little rooms. So what was the first music that you saw growing up that really, like, clicked? Oh, that's a tough one. The, the first music I heard was the Beatles, like, sure. at school. You know, classic, like, okay, I, I can get down with that. That's a tough one. Um, 
I started making my dad take me to concerts at Madison Square Garden at around 11. And um, so that year I saw Cheap Trick, Fleetwood Mac, and Styx. And uh, I loved Cheap Trick. I loved it. That was like probably one of the first live gigs where I was just like, oh my god, It's pretty electric. Yeah. And they were, they were very performance oriented. And um, yeah, I loved it. Yeah. So you didn't start by going to lofts and, no. and CBs and oh no! But you know what? I was remembering this when when I was much younger. We spent like a summer on the island of Paros in Greece, uh-huh. and we were staying with some expats. And one of them did a performance inside the the main village or town, and he was like sitting cross legged in a dark room playing guitar. And I was just like, oh, I realized recently, like, uh oh, like. I haven't come that far from that experience. Mm-hmm. Like I like those small, intimate settings. Mm-hmm. You know, the you mentioned it a second ago. The the series at the Max Fish Basement is my yeah. favorite place to play in Manhattan. Me too. Me too. It just feels really good in there. Yeah. The sound is not good. No, it's there's, not. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of, of ambient sound. Yes. Let's say. But yeah. it just feels great. It's great. It's a great audience. It's super attentive. You know, it's cheap to get in. And there's always something great. I was there last night. Who was playing? Uh, Tamio. Oh, wow. Tamio Shirashi? Yeah. And he was playing with a, a Japanese dancer. She she was... It was just great. Yeah. Really great. Super intuitive. Really wonderful. I'm sorry, I can't recall her name. But sure, sure. But yeah, it's just... It feels like if the New York that I wanted to move to anyway. Yeah. Did... um. So when did you... <laughs> was the violin your first instrument? Yes, yes. Um, and that was like your parents' idea of... Oh, yeah creating a well-rounded child you got it yeah. yeah did you like it uh off and on off and on it caused a lot of like uh tension of course in the family because they had invested so much at that point at a certain point like where i was just like i'm, I'm a done and they would not have it so i just channeled it and started playing in bands when i was 17 on the violin yeah and what, what? <laughs> wait, wait like what kind of bands <laughs> like uh down and dirty kind of dark um like gothy kind of stuff okay uh, i was in one band for a number of years we did a couple of eps and like older people the guitarist played with bronca um very sophisticated and i was that was like my first project where i was like okay i have to make the transition from like reading notes to using the creative brain but taking my skills with me was that an exciting uh proposition i mean Anything that got me out of the orchestras and the lessons. Yeah. So, absolutely. And, you know, I was 17. I just wanted to be around older, cooler people. Had you an awareness of John Cale or Tony Conrad or... Soon after, but not yet. Yeah. Most of my experience up to that, or exposure up to that point, was the orchestral stuff and uh, whatever was on the radio. Everything that was on the radio. Were you checking in with, like, FMU and for KCR? Later, NYU... No, around that time, NYU, prior to that, it was just like the rock stations. It was WNEW. It was PLJ. It was all the rock stuff. I loved the rock stuff growing up in New York. Yeah. Like the New Wave stuff. I I did all of it. The, the just straightforward stuff. Yeah, whatever they were feeding. I mean, I didn't do Billy Joel, but... Um, that's the worst. That's the worst. I hate that shit. <laughs> if I had to pick, like, a, make like a top five list, it just sounds... <laughs> And I mean all sound. I don't just mean music. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm totally with you. I mean, I went to a lot of nightclubs in New York, so I saw 
Iggy Pop. Oh. I saw uh, The Fall. I oh. saw Einstein de Neubaut in their first show in New York. So I saw a lot you of saw crazy stuff. Yeah. yeah. And so very early, you know, things were different back then in New York and they weren't carding you. And if you looked semi-cool, they were like, just come in. And after a while, you were let in for free regularly. Yeah. So I so saw Sonic Youth with Swans and Lydia Lunch very early. Down at Danceteria as well. Yeah, the Cramps were actually like one of the best gigs I saw. This is all like mid-80s stuff. Yeah. Yeah. The Cramps in the mid-80s. It's crazy. There was like 50 people there. And it was one of the scariest gigs I'd been to up, at, up to that point because... Uh, Lux, like, he had these heels that were about eight inches high, and he, he, he takes his microphone and the cable and walks into the audience and starts, like, trying to encircle the audience and the cable, and everyone just backed up. It just completely <laughs> transforms your idea of what a performance is. Yeah. Yeah. You could, you could smell fear in the room. I love that. I know. It's like the... I, I, w- I, I hope that I get to experience that again. I kind of... You know, as like an audience, like I heard the other day that, and I'm not saying I like this, but that Eminem was playing at Bonnaroo, and he had um, he had it worked out so that he, from the PA or whatever, gunshots sounds started going off. Oh no! And in this day and age, everyone was like, "Wait, is this is this how it's going to end?" Did people start running? Yeah. Whoa. So I think that's a little cheap and and not fair to the audience, but. You know what I'm saying? To experience that fear of like, oh, this is more than just music. Like, this is literally life or death. I saw uh, Black Flag at the Mud Club, like, super young, like, 80, 81. And that was the first time where I was just like, oh, shit. And I just started slowly backing up to the wall. Not unlike the cramps. Did you ever see Gigi Allen? Yeah. I I saw that gig at the gas station. The one in the movie where he yeah. w- walks up and down Avenue B, yeah. like throwing the bottle at the bus? So crazy. Oh, my So crazy. God. Yeah, that was astounding. I mean, I guess there's not much point in repeating it, but the show that went on in that lot prior to the sirens, and the but there were bottles flying, like going 30 feet up in the air, and he was actually walking around covered in blood yeah. and shit with a guy behind him with his finger up his... Uh, yeah yeah it was so extreme and to see all the dynamics of like the punks running as soon as they heard the sirens even though they hadn't done anything like fear in the cops faces pure menace yeah and the bus driver panicking when he threw himself on the bus and then him just like walking away in a pair of engineer boots that was it yeah 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 yeah, yeah. it was astounding oh man (laughs) i I think i think gg allen is like the prime example of like go to a show and literally you know, question whether your physical safety is going to be intact. Absolutely. Yeah. They were carrying people out and just dumping them unconscious on the side. The gig itself only lasted like five, seven minutes. Of course. Yeah. You don't need much more than that. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I remember uh, my first experience, you know, cause I, I, you know, I, I w- was not around to see that. I saw Gigi Allen on a talk show. I think it was Sal. Is that a Sally Jesse Raphael or uh, Jerry Springer? Well, and that was how I first encountered Gigi Allen. And I was like, this is, I got to hear what this shit sounds like. So I went to the record store and I bought a Gigi Allen and the Murder Junkie CD. We got home and I listened to it and I was like, this is terrible. This is, <laughs> the music's really bad, but also like it just sounds like shit. Whoever recorded it, it was like, you know, a soup can and string kind of recording. So I go back to the record store. I said, hey man, this CD sucks. And the German woman who was working, she goes, what did you expect? You bought a Gigi Allen CD? Oh, how old were you? 15 maybe and where was this that at that time it was in atlanta georgia oh wow yeah wow 
she told you what was up. She it was that was the <laughs> only response. <laughs> so so you started playing violin with some of these older musicians. Yeah. So I was around seventeen, kind of figured out more like just like the process of like making music. You and know? playing a gig. Absolutely. We played a lot of gigs. A lot of New York gigs. We didn't tour much. We did a, you know, we did Pittsburgh. We went down south a little bit, but mostly like a tremendous amount of New York gigs. Do you remember which clubs? Like, oh my gosh, we played CBGB so many times. You know, at a certain point, it was like that was the the place. There weren't that many other options, and they had a really great sound system. Yeah. So we seemed to play there constantly. We played at Danceteria a couple of times. We played at Irving Plaza once. Um, what were the groups? Like, who were these people? Oh, you want me to name names? You don't have to, but uh, <laughs> if, if it's... I, I was in one main band uh, from my, the end of my teenage years called Of A Mesh, uh, and we recorded two EPs down at Martin BC's studio. Oh, uh, uh, the Can Factory. Yeah, amazing. So that was my first recording experience, which was pretty incredible. He's awesome engineer. Martin's the best. Yeah. So that was a big learning curve um, and a lot of just watching and listening. Yeah. Um, took a break after that, finished college. And you went, like, where'd you go to school? Hunter. Yeah. So you, you, didn't go far. <laughs> you really didn't go far. No, but then I was like, I finally burnt out on New York and I went over to Germany and I met the Metabolismus guys who I've worked with. Off was that Berlin? No, they're uh, outside of Stuttgart, about 45 minutes outside of there. What specifically drew you to Germany? The, that music or? No, I was just like, I was like, I got to get out of New York. I'm traveling. And mm. I, my father actually left a car in a village and I went to pick it up and I immediately burned out the clutch. So I ended up sticking around there. Yeah. And I met Metabolismus and then that was it. Yeah. Uh, so wait, what year was this that you were in Germany? Uh, the end of 91. And That's I just. Pretty exciting time to be there. Oh, it was great. I mean, these guys are, you know. If you know their music, like they're constantly shifting and exploring different stuff. Um, but they were in like those, they were still doing cassettes, cassette releases at that time. And yeah. then uh, their, the first LP, I think, came in around 92. Okay. Yeah. And so I go back every year. And most of like the song records I do, they're at least half, if not all, worked on there. Yeah. Um, and like String Cycle, the experimental violin record was done there. So, and I play on their stuff and they play on my stuff. They engineer. We, it's a very fluid relationship. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. And how long did you stick around there? The first time. Oh, okay. Yeah, the first time was eight months, but now, like, last year I was there for three months. Like, it's. So it's truly like a second home. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, it never hits quite six months anymore, but. Is that just practical reasons, or it's just the... It's unaffordable. It's yeah. like, you know, if I go there, it's really like dropping out. Yeah. You know, you're just in the studio. That's all you're doing. So, yeah. you know, it's not really realistic. Yeah. Also, like I kind of inferred this earlier, but like I got into a crazy situation with my landlord. There was a court case, and I really... That's I, about as New York as it gets. Yeah. If you haven't sued your landlord, like, <laughs> you're not really a New Yorker. That's what it seems like. Actually, my father had to do the same thing because he was a, an artist. I don't know if he actually ever went to court, but there was a lot of negotiating because he did get artists' uh, protection at yeah. a certain point. And then when developers came in, it was just like, well, what do we do with you? You know, and so that had to be negotiated. I mean, 
So, you know, I, I got in this argument with a friend um, two and a half years ago. This was because Reverend Jen was in the news because she was being evicted. Oh, I didn't know. Okay. And, you know, she's not there anymore. And, uh, you know, so all of her personal information about, you know, back rent and all that shit was, was in the blogs and in the news. And I was kind of talking about it with a friend. And she was like, well, what did you expect? You don't pay your rent, you know? Then, like, of course they're going to ask you to go. And it's like, no, but the difference between, like, a management company who has the hard line like that of you don't pay your rent, you're gone, versus a relationship with a human being who offers some sense of flexibility is the most tangible gauge of like whether or not we have like a real give and take and like sort of beautiful in anything that can grow in this city like i've always you know i i am fortunate now I, I own this place but i've always you know i always had landlords i was very lucky that like i would be hard up and i would call them up i'd say hey you know can, can you give me like a little bit of time and the answer was inevitably always yes right when you get it you know don't you know and it's like i mean i'm by no means like you know a new york success story but it that's why i'm still here partially i completely agree with you my landlord lived in the building on ridge and we just paid cash yeah every month for years and years and years until he passed away right and the place was cheap and there was a mutual understanding like sometimes you're not going to have heat <laughs> that's exactly right <laughs> but your rent is really cheap We're, we've got to give and take here and he never increased our rent once there's this building um, a great building in the East Village and I won't say what street it's on but a lot of uh, musicians and artists I know who've been in New York at this point you know 40-50 years all started in this East Village building like you know notable people sorry which street is it on? 7th okay oh okay I understand uh, yeah and um the best story from that time, uh, Cyril Baptista, the percussionist, was yes. telling me that when he lived there, he had to buy his drums back from the same junkie every week. <laughs> he, Who had stolen it? Yeah, he'd come back to his apartment, <laughs> his drums would be gone, he would know exactly where to go, he'd give the guy five bucks and get his drums back. And it was just a cost of, of living. Yeah, cheap living. In the East Village. Absolutely. You know? When we moved into our place on Ridge, there was someone squatting in the staircase and there was of course dealing on the second yeah. floor and most of the apartments were empty we were the first people actually paying rent in i don't know in the last five years or something yeah <laughs> it was... there's all those people you know my first place and I'm, I'm sorry if this is not interesting to people to me it's endlessly <laughs> fascinating my first place on the lower east side i would go there was a the woman i was renting from her father owned a bodega on pitt street and i would go the first of the month and give cash to him and he would every time when i would show up he would say goodbye with a bacon egg and cheese on oh that's nice yeah always a complimentary bacon egg and cheese on a roll with you know a fucking cafe bustello that's beautiful you know and it's just like there's so there's so many things to me like when i when i close my eyes what i see what i smell what i hear it is cafe bustello mm. it is you know like really intense cleaning supplies <laughs> it's just like we had a rooster the landlord kept a rooster <laughs> in the apartment below ours and i once asked him i was like do you want to rent out that place and he's like no the rooster, the rooster lives there. there the yeah. guy oh yeah yeah and so it's just like that's your neighbor you know that's and those are the sounds there is that sort of like you you, you know you forget 
or it's not it's, it's, it's just it's very pronounced and this is why like to me the greatest argument against like m- the monoculture that's taking over is that in your in my adult life I have we always had this joke at Russ and Daughters because the staff there has always been Dominican since oh. the 70s at the store you mean the people who slice the fish yeah. really so we've always called them Juminicans <laughs> and at some point I became a Juminican to them because it was like equal parts it was just like a Loi Saida thing you know <laughs> so in my adult life that I actually incorporated like other culture just into my day to day to me is like one of the great gifts of life yeah I completely agree I you know that was one of the things that always attracted me to the Lower East Side was like it was anonymous but uh, you know everyone was chill and yeah. cool and left you alone and you could we actually had like a full band set up on Ridge Street we had the drum kit the amps everything and we played constantly and no one ever complained yeah yeah. yeah, it's great. Yeah, it's everyone was super, super tolerant. No noise complaints ever. When you first saw Swans, did you? What was that experience like? I was super young. There was this like this place right near Russ and Daughters. I think it was the corner of Second and Houston. Um, very short lived. I think it was called One Plus One or Two okay. Plus Two. Huge loft, illegal space. There were five other people there, and at that, you know. I think I was probably 12, something like that, 13. And, um, you know, we were just like running around, being very precocious, checking out everything. But it, it was intense, of course. But I was just like kind of taking in everything without judgment at that point. Yeah. Um, and then I saw them again much later, probably around 88. And sure, I was doing like somersaults on the stage at like the old Ritz. And I was just like, I'm done. <laughs> you didn't like it? or you? <laughs> I did not like it. <laughs> Just like, you've gone too far for me, man. <laughs> but I remember seeing them at Dance Tour that night with Sonic Youth and Lydia Lunch, and they were great. Yeah. They were really great. Yeah. Have you seen any of the reunion shows? I've, a bunch of them. Oh, cool. Yeah. I I mean, to me, I, I went to their last show um, at Warsaw. I've heard they're great shows. Amazing. Well, I, I took a friend with me. I, I described it to him. He, you know, he's like, "Oh, I've never seen Swans live," and I was like, "Oh, it's it's a religious experience." Oh wow. Uh, yeah, I, I I love that shit. I really really do. I talked to Norman um, a few months ago. He's a trip. I've never had an extended conversation with him. I've met him, but yeah, I mean, I don't. Th- I I got the feeling the only reason we had an extended conversation was because these mics were on. He brought him here. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. You know, it's funny, I did see him up at 48th Street, you know, where all the guitar shops were, the day after that gig, uh-huh. or a couple days later, and I did say something, and he was just cool. Cool? Cool. Cool, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he, he didn't even make eye contact with me, and I was just like, hey, we saw you last night, and he's like, okay. Right. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's, he's a sweet, quiet guy, I think. Uh, when did you start putting your own projects together? Was that- uh... Soon after hooking up with Metabolismus, they they really opened things up for me. Who's in that band? A bunch of German, cool German guys. Yeah. Um, they have their own studio, which is almost all analog. Great gear. When the uh, news, sorry, the broadcast stations start switching to digital over in Germany, you know, everything there is very... Um, defined and everyone has to be using the exact same gear mm-hmm. and specs so they let go of a lot of gear you know v72s v76s telefunken stuff and Jeez. Siemens stuff and they just picked it up 
and we're able to start the studio because of that particular. I mean, that's like the greatest moment. gear you can get your hands on. It's amazing. It's really astounding. And so, uh, sorry, do you hear that Chihuahua? Yeah, she's. I told you she's needy. <laughs> okay, she's fine. She's just very needy. <laughs> so they have a great studio there. Um, and sorry, what was your question? Oh, well, just who was in the group and and what was that experience like? Oh, super fluid, always changing. A um, lot of improvising. That was the yeah. big opener for me. Like, that was when you first started. Yeah, really. You know, because be- when my earliest experiences with the band was more like this, just jamming thing, like trying to get to a place uh-huh. as opposed to being in that place at all moments. Yeah. So as opposed to development, it's just like, all right, you're you're in it, you know, and you're going for it. Yeah. Um. So that changed everything, and that, for a long time after that, I was only interested in improvisation. I mean, with within a like almost a rock or an experimental thing mm-hmm. um and then applied that to me- while metabolismus continued I'd go back and forth I'd still apply the aesthetics of what I'd learned with the like first band I did in New York which was Hall of Fame mm-hmm. um as an adult and so we would just constantly re- record on the four track when you were first getting um excited about improvisation were you thinking about it intellectually as well, like you know, checking out the great improvisers and sort of figuring out a tradition, or were you just more like you were just excited to be in the moment, creating music as it happens? You got it, and, and there's a lot of pot involved, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pot's good for that. Sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> so of course, I was constantly listening to music of all kinds, but um, you know, and obviously, you'd figure out things like can. Yeah. Pretty quickly, you know, that there's this great tradition of this stuff going on already. Sure. Previously, um, you know, and of course you couldn't help but be like super psyched, you know, and then yeah. you're like, oh, yeah. And then there's that band Pink Floyd that probably influenced them. And, you know, this stuff's been happening and you're just trying to do it in your own way. You right. Know? And so like the four tracking and being in an apartment is just, just becomes an extension of how your life is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was it in Germany with that, that gear that they got? Was that sort of like your introduction to the tools of sound production? No, they were also four trackers when I first met them. So everything was the four track there here. I'm like, Oh my God, there's this thing called the PZM that they yeah. have over at Radio Shack. <laughs> yeah. And if you had an SM 57, that was a big deal. So get to them right here. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, yeah, totally. Was was I, I know that sound engineering is a big part of of what you do as well. Less and less, but yeah. Is that a good thing? Um, I have mixed feelings about it. I find it exciting always to learn about the gear and the possibility of sound. But if I was going to become better at it, I was going to have to put in a lot more work. Yeah, and that's not where I want to put my attention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. I learned a lot during the time I was working at the studio, uh, primarily in New York here at the Rare Book Room. Uh-huh. Um, but if I was to do justice to the bands I was working with, I was going to have to go to the next level. And right. I wasn't prepared to do that. Right. I mean, that's a... But it's... it's. I think, like... I mean, and I'll speak for myself. The fact that I can, to whatever extent of quality, I, I can handle and often do every aspect of my own records from you know the recording the mixing the sound coloring with effects and and miking techniques it definitely feeds my creativity um in terms of 
I can't. I'm sorry. That's really a dog is really going crazy right now. Um, um, of of how the music's going to turn out based on you know how I'm going to color it. Um, they're 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 not separate. They're totally. I agree. I mean, whatever knowledge I've accrued over the years is really essential. Like, what kind of mic I think is appropriate for vocals. And, yeah. But I also have worked very closely. Like, this last record, the last solo record I did. Flicker. Flickers at the station. Uh-huh. Yeah, that was done entirely with the Metabolismus guys. And we just have a very intense relationship at this point. I know their gear well. I know most of their decisions. But ultimately, their engineer, um, the one of the main Metabolismus guys, is also a great engineer. Like, I... I have to defer to him. I just yeah. have to. His knowledge is better than mine. And I do defer to him. And especially, I think, at a certain point, like, especially when it comes to mixing any EQ work, I think it's healthy if I take a step back and let someone else get in there um, who can make adjustments and decisions that I wouldn't make, but which are good for opening up the music. It could be problematic. I mean, I just, I just got this master back of this record I spent a really long time working on. And the whole concept of mastering is you got someone else's ears for one last check to, to you know, fix things that maybe you didn't hear because of how immersed you are in it. And I'm pretty sure I don't like the master. Did you attend the session? No. Because I'm an idiot. I go. You got to. You got to. Yeah. Yeah. And if you can, sometimes you got to spend the big bucks. We can talk about this off mic later. Mm, yeah. I mean... <laughs> Yeah, I've 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 been fortunate. I've been you know Scott Hall. No, he's like he used to be at Master Disc. Um, he's got his own place, you know. But he's done Springsteen and and Herbie Hancock and those guys are usually amazing to work with. He's the best. I haven't worked with him in years, but like going to a session with Scott is like it's like you know taking a ride around in a Bentley. It's just <laughs> it's, it's it's insane. It, you really you're like oh yeah, mastering is really important. It's so important. But I remember the first time I did like a really high end session, and I'm hearing my first like solo song record on these forty thousand dollar marbleized speakers, mm-hmm. and I'm just like, oh my god, this sounds horrible. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Really putting a microscope up to it. And saying, yeah, oh, it's Jesus, like you might you might as well be standing there naked. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, but it's, there's you know there's a lot to be said in that. <laughs> like, if you are recording your shit in a you know Lower East Side apartment with like consumer grade gear, and then putting it out on vinyl, I have to ask, like, like the input doesn't really match the output, and you, for me, I try to stay cognizant of those things. Like, just like if I go to Sear Sound and spend all the money in the world. You know, to have it done in discrete analog gear, I'm not going to put it out on a cassette. I agree with you. I totally agree with you. The first Hall of Fame record we'd record entirely on four track. We had no idea what we were doing. Amish Records put it out, and they had a friend master it at a professional house, and he was like, "This isn't releasable. This should not be put out there." Which we thought as the ultimate compliment. Right. Yeah. It's yeah. just like that's right. It's ex- experimental. It's yeah. something you're not used to. Um, but we did release it on vinyl. And it sound great? Uh, you know, the amount of hits from that four track is incredible. Mm-hmm. But um, musically, like, we were we were deep in. And for us, it felt, like, completely relevant and felt it. Mm-hmm. So I had no problem with it coming out of, on vinyl. Wait, when was that? What year was that? Ooh, 94. 
four. Yeah. Three. How's it hold up? Have you listened to it recently? No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's still that tremendous there, amount a, of his. There's a lot of records like that where I listen to them and I'm like, I love this record. It sounds, the music is saturated in such a way that it kind of eclipses the music. Like some of those early Tony Conrad yes. records are like that. Yes. And I liked them that way. I don't know that I could ever do that. I feel like I'd be scared to give that much of the music to the... To the recording aesthetic? Yeah. Um, you know, I I understand. For us, that was definitely part of the relationship. And the only way... We weren't going to go to the studio because everything was improvised and we were just like recording, 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 and mm -hmm. then calling. Like the only way we could make that our music was to do it at home. Yeah. So we dealt with it. And in a, in a weird way, like, our nature, maybe we were shy to a certain degree, mm -hmm. um, and we wanted to be exploring, so we had then this veil right. of his, kind of as a protector in a weird way, or something you could work with. So it functioned on, on multiple levels to our benefit. Yeah. And when you came back to New York the first time after Germany, what did you find when you got here? What was the scene like? Um, you know, I'd left New York really hating it. Like, What did you hate about it? Everyone was doing drugs. Yeah. And no one was doing creative stuff. Everyone was just drinking and doing drugs, and no one was doing bands. And it wasn't the New York I remembered as a teenager where everyone was like, oh, you play an instrument? Well, let's start a band. Mm -hmm. um, which which had been the case. Um, yeah, I was kind of not in a good place. And so I kind of needed to reset. I went to Germany, came back, met new people, and started different projects. Who were some of those people? Um... When I came back, mm. Hall of Fame was a big one. Mm. This great drummer, Dan Brown. I ended up doing this project called Salmon Skin, which was just like weird performance stuff. Really great, though. Really opening the brain. Like, uh, we, we got a generator and took amplifiers and during like CMJ, like just went in front of all the venues and just went and hit it and played for five minutes until the cops came and split. It's just like performance art stuff. You know, I'm sorry. I'm going to let them out real quick. Hold on. They're being really annoying. Pearl. This doesn't normally happen, but I think, I think they're, they're demanding, uh, the Chihuahuas are demanding some kind of inclusion. That's cool. <laughs> My wife's been out of town, so they're they're a little weird. Oh, hi. Hey, Pearl. Um, so you would play in front of the CMJ venues? We went, I remember the first time we did, we went in front of Under Acme, Brownies, CBGBs, the first ending factory on Houston Street, and ended in front of the first Max Fish on Ludlow. On Ludlow, yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, you just played until the cops came, and the cops were so cool. The last time they were, they gave us a ticket for being parked the wrong way down the street. I, I feel like again, like cops, even today, a lot of cops in New York have sort of a give and take understanding of Absolutely. things. Absolutely, you know, which is like, look, you're not killing anyone, you're not setting anything on fire. Like, there's, there's a, there's a bit of. Yeah, which was not there during the Giuliani years, actually. Giuliani, yeah. Yeah, because I remember uh, we were unloading gear, and one of my bandmates took a piss on the street, and all of a sudden there were five cop cars. Right. And then they definitely gave him a ticket. There was no give and take at all. The Giuliani years in New York, I think, really snapped a lot of people awake to... I mean, he's, he's a little tyrant. 
Yeah, it was a whole new harsh reality. Like yeah. the the laid backness that this town once had was no longer there. Right. Yeah, you, and now you see that idiot on TV. <laughs> that fucking embarrassment that he is. He's just such an unlikable idiot. It, it's like who who in his life has genuine reverence for him because he's just such a repellent little creep. <laughs> I'm not going to go there to politics with you, but, yeah. but I agree. You know, it's just like, did you see him at the Yankees game the other day? No, but I heard. Yeah, it was so <laughs> pleasing to me. On his 75th birthday, everybody at Yankee Stadium booed him. So we still got some New Yorkers left. Hey, there's still a few. I remember the whole stadium of them, apparently. And uh, the violin is like, I play an instrument similar to the violin in that there's a pretty dogmatic history and cultural uh attitude towards the right and wrong way to play these instruments were you able to shake that pretty easily uh it took some time you know you you get this like huge amount of training and it's very fixed and yes playing an orchestra can be amazing but uh, ultimately you know i couldn't connect to most of the people in the orchestras they weren't listening to the same kind of music i was Mm -hmm. listening to outside um, oh, I'm sorry, what's your question? Just for a lot of people who play classical instruments but then go on to do, you know, sort of unconventional creative things, there can sometimes hang this this darkness of of the tradition. I think more, something I've been thinking about a lot, a lot lately is the weight of technique where it just, sometimes you're just overtrained and it creeps in. Yeah. Where you rely more on your ability as opposed to like a creative impetus. Um, which I have to be very careful about. But, you know, I was, I was on YouTube this morning. I was watching a video of you playing with um, Marsha Bassett. Mm-hmm. And I listen to you play violin, and it's like you're clearly maintaining, you know, the fundamentals of the instrument, you know, the intonation. Like, it's, it's focused. I can hear it, you know? Unfocused violin playing can be very difficult <laughs> to listen to. <laughs> even when it's in the hands of the, you know, the maestros. It's really... There's a family that's moved in down the hall, and their kid is learning the violin. And, you know, I don't want to stomp on anyone's dreams, but I'm sure he'll be great one day. Let's hope so. Also, every project is different. Mm-hmm. Um, with someone like Marsha, like I try and play to her. You know, we have a a thing, yeah. And she's got such a great sound on the guitar and with her effect pedals that I try to really integrate into that with her and travel with her as closely as possible. Um, and she's very tonal, obviously, mm-hmm. so it's easy to work with. Have the effects pedals, uh, has that bug bitten you pretty? Yeah, I think it hit everyone pretty yeah. hard. It's crazy. It, it's, I mean, they're just, they're so... There's Well, there's so many possibilities. It's like makeup, you know? Yeah. It's like a little blush... Some eyeliner can really accentuate, you know, the uniqueness and beauty of your face. But if you cake it on... What about drum sounds from the 70s or reverb <laughs> from the 80s or the flanger sound on all those guitars? I hate flangers. <laughs> I do too. I really hate that sound. Certain, there's certain sounds like, I, you know, I've got some pretty sweet plugins for my Pro Tools rig. And I'm like, I just want to go ahead and delete everything that is a flanger or phaser because I don't like it. <laughs> Who knows how I'll look back on this age? Well, this has been a conversation. This this friend of mine is a pretty brilliant engineer. He 
is, you know, he, he charges and he does great work with great clients. And a lot of his things, he, he gets frustrated with like the home recordists and specifically with the current use of long reverbs because it's his belief that it's less of an aesthetic choice and more of people covering up the fact that they're recording in places like where we're sitting right now. So the trend that he sees coming is bone dry recordings coming back. Oh, that would be nice. You like that sound? Yeah, a little reaction. You know, a reaction I think is always healthy to, you know, you don't want to swing too far, which will happen, of course, but then it rebalances things. Yeah. Yeah, I know exactly what he's talking about with the reverbs. I love reverb. I, you know, some of it sounds great to me, some of it doesn't. I remember the first time um, I was recording with this band, Metal Mountains, over mm -hmm. at the Sonic Youth Studio. On uh, Murray Street? Uh, no, the one in Hoboken. Uh-huh. And they have the plate reverbs, the EMT plate reverbs. The real thing. Yeah. Yeah. And you hear that for the first time, and it's just like, I know that sound. It's classic. It's gorgeous. It's thick. It has a real presence unto mm -hmm. itself. And that changes the ball game. But if you, know, if you can't get that, <laughs> you have to think very carefully about how you're going there. Yeah. You don't want it to sound cheap and obvious. It's such a battle for me, because I, I rely on reverb. As a compositional tool, I love hearing the way tones sort of like blend into each other, specifically with the clarinet. Wow. But everyone, almost everyone is like, hey, do you want to dial that back? It's, really? It's a bit much. So that goes maybe back to the earlier point I was saying about working with other people, you know, get another perspective. I, I don't have, like, I don't know where the balance is because I feel like, okay, yeah, that's the, that makes sense. Work with someone else, except that you trust. Yeah. yeah, and even if you aren't immediately comfortable with it, hopefully you'll get comfortable with it and trust that there it's a sound decision. And I've had it work both ways, where I've listened back to something years later and said, "No, I should have just kept it the way I liked it," because I still hear like I still hear that something's missing. Well, I think there's also that really important thing about like if that's what you like and that's what you hear, you should just do it because yeah. you're forging your own territory. Yeah, and your own sound. You know, go with it. Yeah. But, you know, that's that's a very personal creative decision. I mean, self-doubt, you know, really affects people differently. Do you have a lot of self-doubt? Uh, it depends on the context. Yeah. Um, some stuff, no. Some stuff, yes. It depends also, like, where you are. Like, have you been in the project a long time? You know, do you feel like you've, you understand the project? Mm -hmm. Or is it something new where you're still um, exploring... There was one rock band I did that um, I got thrown onto an instrument that I wasn't maybe as comfortable as like the violin. What instrument? The bass, the electric okay. bass. And it, uh, I love playing the bass. I love it. Yeah. But, you know, this was a situation where everything was coming fast. Is that Chelsea Light moving? Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and there was a very fast and large learning curve. Yeah. And I was just like... How'd that go? Uh, it went okay. You know, playing playing is great. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter what you're doing. It's just great for the, you know, I can't think of anything I've done where I haven't enjoyed the playing in the last, like, 15 years. That is a blessing. Oh, I know. <laughs> <laughs> but when you were, were finding your way on the bass to play in this specific project, how much were you thinking of just, like, I just got to figure out how to play the right notes to get through the song? And how much of your thinking was, like, no, I got to have a vibe on the bass? 
oh, I think I was really just trying to get the notes down yeah. <laughs> and hoping the vibe was coming with it. Yeah. No, I was really like just like hanging on. Yeah. yeah. It was it was one of those projects that just came out of nowhere and was flying. And you're just like, okay, I'm here for the ride. I'm going to do the best I can. But in that process, did you find your who you are as a bass player? Uh, you know, I've done a lot of bass before and uh-huh. since. Um, I don't know if that particular band was uh, the best place for my particular style, necessarily. <laughs> no? <coughs> I would say probably not. Yeah. And also, there was this huge shadow of Sonic Youth mm-hmm. hanging over the band. So, like... In some ways, I felt a little bit cornered, you know. Mm. There was no way I was ever going to play like Kim, just because I'm, you know, we're different people, different musicians. Right. But um, That would have been a little weird if you did play like her. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, people's expectations, you know, and um, yeah, I felt cornered a little bit. Yeah. I mean, what do you do in a situation like that? Just sort of do your work and keep your head down or? Yeah, for the most part. How was that? Tiring. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. There was a lot of lot of touring, you know, and a lot of like on your toes, on your toes, uh, trying to catch stuff. And I missed having like more projects and more personal projects and having the time. And Thurston was just like on a roll, you know. He wasn't mm-hmm. stopping at that point, you know. So it was. I think it was a little bit of a relief for everyone once it kind of ended. Quite down, yeah. 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 But it's cool to like. You know, I have a lot of friends who, I, you know, just a second ago you were talking about these projects that, you know, you've been fortunate to to enjoy everything in the last, you know, 15 years or so. I always say, I don't ever do anything I don't want to do, but there's a lot that I want to do that I don't. Oh. <laughs> you know? And I envy, like, one of my dearest friends is uh, the drummer Brian Chase. Oh, okay. I heard a great story from him recently. What's that? Uh, it was through someone else, but it was about how Dave Lombardo does not warm up before a gig. Are you serious? Yeah. <laughs> you go ask Brian. So, <laughs> Ryan Sawyer told me the story in the context of a Man Forever gig where all the drummers are freaking out and doing their warm up yeah. techniques, and Brian's just sitting there meditating, like yeah. really chill. And Ryan was like, What's up? And he told them the Lombardo story. It's so good. I, my Lombardo story, I taught Dave Lombardo how to slice fish at Russ and Daughters. Aww. <laughs> That's great. How good is that? That's great. And it was so cool. I met him because, you know, he and Zorn are good friends. Wow. And, uh, so when I was working at Russ and Daughters, John texted me. He's like, hey, I'm coming in with Lombardo in like a half an hour. Is that cool? And I was like, yeah, of course, you know. Lombardo showed up 15 minutes early, and I was like, hey, you're Dave, you know, we met. And he was like, this is so cool. What is all this? So I brought him behind the slicing counter. It was like showing him the different fish. And the next day, Dave came back with his band that he had with him at the time called Film, which is no longer together. But he came back to Russ and Daughters and was schooling the other guys in the band. Like, see, this is smoked sturgeon. Smoked sturgeon is like when you're treating yourself. And it was so funny <laughs> to see how quickly he'd become like the smoked fish maven. That's so great. Yeah. Well, I wanted to ask you about Russ and Daughters because I thought you had to be like over 50 to work behind that counter. <laughs> I've been 50 since I was, I was 50 when I was 13. <laughs> okay. So I'm like 80 now. <laughs> you're looking good. Yeah. <laughs> well... <laughs> <laughs> no, it is that place ages you very quickly. Really? Well, in some ways. I mean, salmon oil is very good for your for your skin and your cholesterol. 
it seemed like there were never any young people in there. No, now there are. Now it's like, you know, the Lower East Side's cute. The one on Houston? Yeah. Wow. I mean, when I first, when I first started working there, it was still like, um, it was such, I remember this one time so specifically, it was such a trip, you know, like, people that, na- people on the Lower East Side now don't realize how common it was to have to shoot junkies away. Yeah, yeah. You know, or to ask someone to leave, you know, several times a day, you would say, hey man, I'm sorry, you gotta go, you know. And I remember one day I was working there, and I was behind the um, the candy counter where all the dried fruit is. Yeah. This guy came in, was acting really weird, and I had said something about, you know, I think you got to leave. And he got really aggressive with me very quickly, and I got, like, scared. But I looked around the store, and there was, like, 13 Dominican guys holding razor-sharp knives. <laughs> <laughs> and they were all watching. I was like, hey, get the hell out of here. <laughs> They were experienced and they had your back. In the, yeah, and that, you know, shooing the junkies away. Mm. So I, I listened to the new record this morning, Flicker at the Station, is that what it's called? Flickers at the Station. Flickers at the Station. It's not what I expected. Well, um, well, I mean, I've made like six very similar records yeah. to that, so... <laughs> um, what were you expecting? Well, that was the thing. I guess I don't know what I was expecting, but, you know, I guess, you know, you know people through certain channels, you know, and I, you know, I, I know you just came back from, from playing Murs with Nate Woolley, yeah. you know, who's my brother. You Have you known Nate a long time? No, but he's so wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. No, he's, he's like, I mean, he's my sister's age, so he's, you know, he's literally like an older sibling to me. I've known him for a very long time. Well, We've done a lot of stuff together. Um, so I, I, you know, my awareness of you was sort of through like that and playing with Ryan and, you know, so I was like, oh, I'll check out the new record. And I was like, you know, it's really cool pop music. It's something completely different. Yeah. I was thinking about that coming over because I had a suspicion that you knew of my work more th- from the experimental right. side of things. And I find most people like they're one or the other. Yeah. Yeah. And there's not a lot of crossover. Um, but I, I like songwriting. I really like songwriting. Yeah. And I really like free music, you know? Mm-hmm. And I have some ability to move back and forth between both worlds. I mean, do you see, like, do those places bridge? In small ways. I mean, yeah. an obvious thing would be, like, touring with Thurston. Like, you know, you have your set, but then you have your... Maybe we would do a song off of Psychic Hearts, which would go into an extended improvisation and... My favorite part of the night, always. Of course, yeah. yeah. It things because he's an amazing improviser, mm-hmm. and things would just open up in an astounding ways. Really jaw dropping stuff, huge pleasure. Um, but then, for example, on the new record, you know, you're doing these vo- very, very structured songs, you know, and you're writing bass parts to it or guitar parts. But then every once in a while, you're like, okay, well, something's missing, and you'll do like some improvised violin track just to see how it goes yeah maybe it makes the cut i mean they're very self-indulgent the song records you know they're they're just a chance for me to play the instruments i want Mm -hmm. you know and explore sonics and over the overdub world and dagenfeld where the metabolism studios really affords that you know they have an amazing array of instruments there so it's just like basically having as much fun as you possibly can yeah and making like really unique statements. I mean, to the point of like, it's funny, people sort of, this is what I was going to say earlier about Brian, how his name originally came up is like, I, I, I really, I'm not going to say I'm envious, but to be able to have such a broad range of activity from, you know, playing with the yeah, 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 to, you know, playing drone music on drums, you know, the following night, it's really like a, 
it's an enviable position if you know if that's what you're into that's what you're into yeah um but funny enough it's like i i i feel like if you're making interesting singer songwriter records the records are way more unique and identifiable than a lot of imp- improvised music that's a good point that's interesting you know like yeah. i can hear You know, I, can, I mean, yeah, I, I could pick something out like, yeah, yeah, it's instantly say, oh, yeah, it's Karen O singing, you know. But, you know, someone blowing like a free jazz session is going to be much harder for me to pick out right off the bat, potentially. So is that because the artist themselves is so distinctive? Maybe. As opposed to the form? Probably. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I couldn't tell you the difference between like, do you, do you, are you aware of modern pop music at all? No. Yeah, I try not to be. I I just I'm just not exposed in the way It's just not good. You know, I I can't fully buy into that just because every generation has great music. So there's got to be some good stuff. I just haven't like found it yet. It's so tricky for me and I'm trying to figure this out because I if if I see myself aging like rapidly in a way that I find like the worst qualities of the elderly, I try to 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 cut it off. You know what I'm saying? So if I find myself saying, that shit, that's not music, that's not music, but the part of me that says that's not music is the intellectual and curious side. So if I hear like some really uninteresting, crappy music in the back of an Uber, I hear it as like, yeah, this is of course the music you would hear when someone like Donald Trump is president. It makes perfect sense. Like the world's a cesspool and this is what a cesspool sounds like. But am I just being that old timer who's like, ah, that shit's not music? Well, that's the question. But also, it's just like there's that top veneer always of pop music, mm-hmm. and then there's all the other stuff underneath, which I know I'm missing out on. Um, uh, okay, so you have your uh, who won the Grammy in 1967? It was the Fifth Dimension. Okay. Okay. Uh, what else is going on in that year? Oh, God. Exactly. Yeah. So radio is playing the fifth dimension like crazy, but we know there's an amazing amount of stuff going on in both coasts. Right. And if you just dig a little deeper... But that, I mean, because like Jimi Hendrix would have been destroying amplifiers at that time. I mean, Sgt. Pepper... I, I, right. And There's I, all kinds of stuff. There's I, this... I know we remember things selectively, and I wasn't around then, but I feel like that was pretty popular music. Uh, well, not according to the the Grammy people, <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> I'm just saying, in terms of like what what's maybe getting most play on the radio at a given time isn't what surfaces later necessarily. You know, time kind of discerns. You know, we make choices. Uh, you know, what we decide, we look back on. You know, like Sinatra dominates the the 40s and Elvis yeah. dominates the 50s, but probably that wasn't the reality back at the time. Right. But also, my point more being that if you dig past the first layer, there's amazing stuff. It starts opening up pretty quickly. Yeah, in every area. Yeah. So the question is whether you want to spend that time or not, or if you know someone who can hip you to some stuff. I just feel like that, that the, the, the distance between those layers has just grown much more. Like, you know, for a band like the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs to become this like phenomenon, I don't think that's going to happen again. I don't think that you're going to have your. Um, you know, even like MTV, as like dumb as it was when it was a music channel, you would see 
you know, stuff appear side by side. So whatever the most popular thing, you know, at least within a couple of hours would be joined by Sonic Youth or something, you know. I just don't know that that's going to happen again. Um, Don't be so negative, man. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> that's really good advice. But, you know, we're New Yorkers, so where would we be without it? Without negativity? Yeah. Remember, did you see Ghostbusters 2? No. It's pretty cool. Like what they, what they realize is that for New York to run, they it, it New York runs on all of the collective negativity. <laughs> I saw a clip with uh, Lou Reed the other day, oh, one man. of my all time favorite New Yorkers, yeah. and uh, he was talking about the West Coast and how different the East Coast and the West Coast was in terms of like just like vibe and approach, yeah. you know, and like we're dark, we're negative. Yep. You know, it seems to be changing with the massive influx of yeah. people from different places. Well, also things are just kind of becoming homogenized. Yeah. Know? Although if you go somewhere else, you know, like I was just in southern Germany for three weeks and New York, it does not look homogenized at all. In southern Germany? I mean, here. Oh, right, right, right. There. It's, you know, it's opening up there remarkably and remarkably quickly. But yeah. New York is still astounding in terms. And I think we lose perspective. Cause I mean, you know, you know, yeah, you want to... You wanna, yeah, leave New York for five days, yeah. <laughs> and you realize you're the most negative person in the room, and you're the person who has no patience for people's fucking bullshit, you know, and everyone thinks you're a jerk. Like, I go to I go to visit my sister in Athens, Georgia, and uh, yeah, they can't take me out of the house. I'm at the restaurant, and the server's talking for like five minutes. I'm like, hey, are you going to take an order, or like, do I have to hear about you? <laughs> Enough of you. Yeah. Um. New York is surprisingly not homogenized. I keep thinking that, like it's just, especially in our neighborhood yeah. where you're seeing this massive influx. But compared to so many places, it's so incredibly diverse still. Yeah, there's there's an element here that I don't think they're ever going to be fully able to get rid of that keeps people in check. I agree, and that's really a fabulous totally thing, agree. you know. Like, I believe I, I, you know, this big thing in New York now are these food halls. Yeah. They're, they're, they're fundamentally shopping malls. You're about to get one. Man. I know. And I don't, I mean, you know, as a person who owns property, I feel good about it. You know, it <laughs> enriches my investment. As a person who cares about the soul of his neighborhood, you know, hey, not so good. The, I'm just going to say, you know, I grew up in an amazing place. And after about 20 years, I was shocked that my father could still live there. Yeah. Yeah. It really lost all of its individuality. Well, here's where we're in trouble if we get to this point as New Yorkers. The thing that has always kept New York, New York, in my opinion, is you have to, it doesn't, it doesn't matter how hard you try to keep yourself in a bubble. At some point, you have to cross the street and face the homelessness and face, you know, the different gruffness kinds of, of, people. of different people. Yeah. So when I see these food malls, sh it, it's like it's very clear to me what the intention is, which is put it all in one place and make it easy for people to avoid the reality of the world, you know? So I've always felt like stepping over a homeless person to get into Russ and Daughters was like, it, it. a person in New York City maintains a level of groundedness based on the fact that like, oh, there's someone shitting on themselves right beside me. Absolutely. And this sounds filthy. Yeah. It's dirty. Yeah. Yeah. And people don't mind getting down and dirty as well. You yeah. Know? There's still a looseness, you know. And something I've noticed compared to Europe, like 
where they're they're a bit more social oriented and which is very benefit beneficial to the greater society but things are loose here still mm. compared to Europe mm-hmm. and just straight up laws and socially and you know things are therefore more possible mm-hmm. in a different way I'm sure I'm gonna get shit for saying that but no I mean it's true you know it's true <laughs> yeah I always feel like this city if any of us knew how like jerry-rigged and like band-aided together the physical infrastructure of this city is how at any moment we're about five minutes from the whole thing just crumbling in on itself yeah, definitely the subway system I, I don't even go down there anymore <laughs> you know but they had the whole thing the subway system the electrical grid it is just cobbled together with chewing gum and bobby pins and i feel like a lot of the the social stuff is too it's just like random people coming in and out constantly yeah the other thing is of course you have to be up for a very intense like experience like new york is not a chill thing <laughs> it's just not and it, it yeah it really kind of throws it back in the face of the chill people <laughs> which i'm you know i'm good yeah. <laughs> are you are you touring much with the new record no um do you want to uh i've mixed feelings about it um i just was over in germany and with the metabolismus guys we did like uh half a set that was songs from the new record and half a metabolismus set I mean, the whole thing ended up being like an hour and a half, but we're putting together a tour now, doing the same concept, uh, but in Europe in the fall. Yeah. So I'm sure that'll be a blast. That's going to be like a six-week European tour kind of thing? Oh, definitely not. <laughs> definitely not. <laughs> much shorter. Much shorter. Those guys are not ambitious at all. Do you, I mean, does the prospect of a six-week tour entice you? Or? Uh, I, I actually like touring, um, but I understand that three weeks should be the maximum of any tour i get it yeah you know people start getting a little bit weird and talking to their jackets after yeah three you know and i get it you know i I think it's just smarter to break things up into like maybe two weeks here yeah two weeks there yeah yeah yeah. Yeah, just and have you maintained a touring life in europe the the whole time uh pretty good pretty good marcia and i were there a year ago um, I've gone over with Nate for short, short things twice this year. Um, the year prior, I did some solo work over there. Mm-hmm. So I, I get over at least once a year, it yeah. seems like. That's great. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. This is a, obviously, I, you know, most people know that it's, it's just a way better experience there in terms oh, it's of. night and day. Yeah. Night and day. So it's good to get that every yeah. once in a while. Yeah, it kind of helps you feel uh, grounded. Yeah. Yes, stateside touring is super tough, obviously. So yeah. I'm not jumping into that anytime soon. No, it's it's a kind of a daunting. I mean, I'm, I'm doing some in a couple of weeks, and I'm like, right now, I'm like, why am I doing this? How long are you going out for? A few days. <laughs> a few days. And I'm just like, why am I doing this, you know? No, do it. It'll be awesome. Yeah, it'll be good. It'll be good. I just. <laughs> You know, uh, kind of as, as I was saying before, like playing every night is great, you know, and sometimes you go to the most random of spots and there's three people there and it's the best gig you've ever had. Yeah. We'll see. <laughs> I appreciate you coming over and talking. My pleasure. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. All right. I hope that you guys enjoyed that. That was me and Sabera Lubelski. That was a lot of fun. I enjoyed that. She's cool as shit, man. She's a good neighbor. 
he's the kind of person who, um, you know, once typified the Lower East Side. And uh, I'm glad she's my neighbor. Check her out. Go online. Go to SamaraLabelski.com. And uh, all of her recordings, they're great. Enjoy, you know, enjoy the world of Samara Lebelski. If you're enjoying this show, check out the past episodes. There's a lot of them, <laughs> almost 200. And uh, rate, review the show on iTunes, go to the Patreon, throw in a few bucks, do all that. And that's it. We're going to be back next week. Next week is an interesting one. Next week is part it's part two of a show that took place about a year ago and uh, we get to the bottom of some stuff it's gonna be fun hope you guys are all doing well hope you're all uh, hanging in and uh, we'll talk to you next week bye bye